Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode technically really isn't brought to you by anybody, but... Um, today's. Today's, that's right. Thank you, Jack, because we already did one this week. But uh, truth be told, I should also say that it is kind of brought to you by the National Review Institute's Idea Summit, which I'll talk about at the end. And I never gave Untuck It the right plug that it deserved last time because I hadn't received my Untuck It shirts yet. But I've since gotten them, and I like them a great deal. So we'll give a little shout-out at the end to them as well. Um, there's a great story about how Winston Churchill, while rehearsing some speech in his bathrobe after taking a bath while visiting the United States, was so distracted or consumed with, with his work that he didn't notice that his bathrobe had fallen off. And then when FDR came um, and knocked on the door and opened it up, rather than duck behind a chair or, you know, scramble to the bathroom, uh, FD, uh, Churchill apparently just stood bolt upright and said, Mr. President, the Prime Minister of England has nothing to hide from the President of the United States and just stood there naked. Um, I don't I've heard a similar story about Lincoln's ghost also seeing Churchill naked. So Churchill must have been doing this a lot. Lincoln's ghost? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we'll return to that in a minute. Anyway, the reason I bring this up um, is that uh, I just I, we have nothing to hide from our listeners. We already recorded the conversation with uh, Dan Hanan, and we did it with a with a in joint production with the AI folks because of reasons that are complicated but not interesting. Uh, we couldn't get the podcast studio, so we did it on video and recorded it that way. So they'll be releasing a video version of this. Um, and we just have to re-record the intros and the outros. So this is the intro that we're re-recording. So get ready uh, for the conversation, which I thought was um, fun, with our friend Dan Hanan. Daniel Hanan, thanks for doing this. Thank uh, you. Daniel Hanan, you are a representative representative, parliamentarian, what, what were they called? The people <laughs> yeah. who go and argue about the shape of cucumbers in Europe? Exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm one of the cucumber arguer shapers. Uh -huh. uh, not for much longer. I'm a member of the European Parliament until the day of Brexit, which could be, I mean, I think we're, we're weeks rather than years away, but uh, it could still be prolonged a little bit. Okay. Since, since you brought up Brexit, this is one of these things where I just have to cravenly cater to the demands of the public rather than actually talk about the stuff I want to talk about. Uh, what the hell is going on with Brexit? Okay, here's the short version. Uh -huh. When MPs invited the country to have a referendum, it never occurred to those MPs that the country might disregard their advice and vote to leave. Uh -huh. 
And so you get a lot of abstract nouns about what's going on at the moment, that it's chaos, that it's a disaster. You know, uh, Donald Tusk, uh, the leader of the EU, said, you know, there's a special place in hell reserved for you guys, which is kind of rather, rather proving why we voted leave. <laughs> but if you, if you look behind all those abstract nouns, a very simple thing is going on, which is that a group of MPs are trying to frustrate the referendum result, either by overturning it completely or by ending up with something that is technically Brexit, but that actually keeps all of the obligations and, and costs of membership. And, you know... The, the the root cause of all the chaos, uh, as described in, you know, particularly if you read the New York Times or the FT, the country isn't in, in crisis. The, you know, the economy's never been doing better. We've got more people in work than ever before. The stock exchange is stronger than ever, all the rest of it. It's simply a crisis in Westminster mm-hmm. caused by the, I suppose it's the last throes of a, of a ruling class that used to be able to set the parameters and has lost that ability. So one of the things you often hear, or at least I often hear, I suspect you do too, is that the, not you in particular, but the whole Brexit team were like the dogs that caught the car. And they never really had a great plan for what comes next. Is, do you think that's fair? No. I mean, there was a big doorstopper book uh, produced by the predecessor organization of, of Vote Leave, Business for Britain. Um, explaining what would be the necessary changes if we were going to stay. And that would have been the perfect blueprint for what to do if we were going to go. But I'll tell you the problem. Vote Leave didn't then form the government. The the almost universal assumption the day after the referendum is that the new prime minister would have to be someone who had been on the winning side because this was going to obviously consume the government for the next couple of years. You may remember there was this rather weird thing where all the candidates basically disemboweled themselves until only Theresa May was left standing. So she then came in as someone who had voted Remain. And how she defined leave was very different from if a leaver had done it. Uh, both ways round. So she, she was unable to make concessions because she had something to prove. So in the early days, she used some very, very harsh language about uh, people who voted Remain, saying they were citizens of nowhere and so on, which... You know, which a, which a lever wouldn't have needed to do. A, a lever would have said, look, we've all got to come together. It was a narrow result. We've got to try and carry both sides with us. But she really defined Brexit just as coming out with something called Brexit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the other side sensed that immediately and conducted their negotiations accordingly. To the sort of analogous to where we are with the wall in the States now. We're at the point where anything that can be called a wall will count as a wall. Yes. Right? Very, very good... Uh, and, and actually, it's, it's interesting that you pick the wall because to the extent that there was any policy consistency in Theresa May's view of it, the whole thing for her was about restricting immigration. Right. Now, here's a, here's a rule of thumb, Jonah, what we might pretentiously call a heuristic, right? If any Brit tells you that the Brexit vote was all about immigration, I guarantee that you are talking to somebody who voted Remain. I mm. guarantee it, right? Leave us know that the real issue for most of us was sovereignty, democracy, taking decisions more closely to the people that they affect. But for Theresa May, it was all about migration. And Mm -hmm. and the proof that she was wrong about that, if you like, is how badly her plan went down with leavers. Because what she came up with was basically a model that would have restricted migration but kept everything else in place. And, of course, that was not what people voted for. But I can swear there has been some, at least some journalism, but also some social science that said that... that, uh, I'm not trying to put a pejorative stink on it, but... Attitudes about uh, feeling that they were losing their country to immigrants, nativism, that there was some social science backing up the idea that immigration played an outsized role. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is 
generally fairly results-driven oh. uh, stuff, and it comes overwhelmingly from strongly remain sources because it, 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 it makes their world much easier, right? They, much more pleasant for them to understand the world as, oh, we were up against ignorance, bigotry, nostalgia, you know, far harder than asking whether the EU had done anything wrong, mm. you know. And, and this is particularly the case in Brussels. In Brussels, it is considered gospel that the only reason that Britain voted against is because they were whipped up by unscrupulous demagogues, that they had a terrible tabloid press that told lies and so on. So the approved responses to Brexit in the EU are uh, disbelief or rage. You can either say they'll come to their senses, it's not going to happen, or you can say bloody idiots, you know, wait until they get what's coming. The one thing you cannot do, the one thing you're absolutely not allowed to to ask is, hmm, I wonder wonder why they voted leave. I wonder whether we we might have played that a bit differently. I wonder whether there's something we could do even now that would make us a bit more popular. I wonder whether any other country might feel this way. Because that, of course, is much harder. That would involve some self-analysis. Much easier just to dismiss all of your opponents as bigots and xenophobes. And again, there's another analogy there with with the Trump stuff. I mean, people know that I'm not exactly in the Trump fan club. But the idea that, you know, when I came out with my book... The number of liberals who hated to mm. hear that maybe their pushes for identity politics, maybe their the way they talked about globalism, the way they talked about how gleeful they were about replacing whites as a majority in the country, um, all of these various. I just have played a little part, right? And that's so true, and and that has been going on big time since the vote in yeah. both cases, right? But both yeah. post Trump and post Brexit. So, you know, when when Tusk just said, which he just said a few hours ago at the moment that we're recording, you know, you can all go to hell. The shocking thing is not that he said that; it's the number of Brits who was, who have now got themselves into such a warped position yeah. that they will defend that kind of comment against their own country, right? And that, of course, vindicates just like with the Trump voters. What, what made them vote for it in the first place. The other parallel, which I think is... Fa- I mean, look, I, I really... I don't want to overdo this. Uh-huh. There are... You know, the, 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 the New York Times view of the world, which is that Brexit was just a kind of British form of trumpery, is is manifestly false, uh-huh. right? Uh, it's, also a view, it, it, it's also a view that Donald Trump has. Yes, <laughs> yes, and, and the, the Financial Times has and so on. But it is... It is I mean, the, it is true that they had in common a sense of anger at what was perceived to have been a failed elite. That, yeah. that much is true, and in the sense of being slighted as well. Yeah, that, but, you know, there was not a hint, for example, of protectionism in the, in the Leave campaign. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, I mean, a big, as I understand it, a big part of Donald Trump's shtick was, I don't want free trade with China, right? right? A big part of Vote Leave was, we do want free trade with China. We have to leave the EU to get it, because the EU is a protectionist customs union. It's a racket, and if we want to be a free trading country, we want to be... So I, I wouldn't overdo it, but the one... One really interesting parallel since is the annoyance of people on the other side that they can't quite disguise that the economy is doing well. And, you know, that is really a bad look. Yeah. If, if when, when new figures come out showing that there is record low unemployment or record strong growth or whatever, if your first reaction is to look for a way of discounting or disbelieving or minimizing it, right. never a good look. Yeah, yeah. But you wouldn't be making the case that the economy is doing well because of the Brexit vote. You're just saying that the prophecies of doom have been proven false. Proven uh, false to right. a degree that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, insofar as you can ever win an argument in politics definitively, this is it, right? I mean, because w- these prophecies were not just coming from Remain campaigners. Fair enough, right? Of course, they're going to make the best sure. spin they can on the figures. But they were coming from the Treasury. They were coming from the Bank of England, from the IMF, from the OECD. I mean, the, in its official report on Brexit, the Treasury said the, the act of voting leave that just the fact of voting leave before you even leave 
will be so such a hammer blow to the economy that within two years, in a best-case scenario, unemployment will have risen by half a million, and in a worst-case scenario, by 800,000. Mm-hmm. We're two and a half years in, and unemployment has fallen by 800,000. There are more people in work than ever before in British history. Exports are up, manufacturing is up, consumer confidence is up. I mean, you measure it in any way you like, and yet the Financial Times, the Labour Party, and the, the, the Remain establishment cannot conceal their annoyance at the economic good news. Yeah. All right, so I, I want to get off this in a second, but what do you say, uh, m- my colleague Michael Brendan Doherty, who, let's be clear, has some issues related to his proud Irish heritage that sometimes come to play. Nonetheless, he's a great guy. He, uh, uh, but it's always an interesting frequency when he's talking about things about England um, or Great Britain. Um, he's made the case that while if he were in England, he would have voted Brexit, but as an American, he's against it because it's better for us to have our guys on the inside. Yeah. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, that was Obama's argument. Right. Uh, and it, you know, actually, I can see that. You know, if, if, the, if the EU is becoming anti-American, protectionist, you know, hostile... It's to, nice having Daniel Hanan on the it's, floor it's saying... It's better to have some guys yeah. in there moderating. But of course, yeah. if you think about it, by definition, that is a good reason for us to leave. Uh-huh. Right? I actually think the way, the way the world is moving, these old blocks are just redundant. They are a hangover from the 1950s. And the world is unrecognizable since then. So in the, when the EU was formed in 1956, freight costs were high, refrigeration was expensive... And regional blocks looked like the future, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the assumption was that big was beautiful, whether in the, in the corporate world or in, in politics, and the world was dividing into these great blocks. Now, I mean, that, that is not the world we live in now. We have, you know, cheap flights. We have the internet. Uh, geographical proximity has never mattered less. And what I think matters much more now than it used to is cultural proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is easier for a company in my constituency to do business here than across the channel in France because the companies here are common law. They have the same accountancy method. They have the same, uh, if there's a dispute, it's arbitrated under a common law system that they both understand. It's the same language, obviously. Uh, And indeed, very often it will be the same companies, right? The U.S. is the single biggest investor in the U.K. The U.K. is the single biggest investor here. So the idea that we should be locked by geographical accident into a, a, a customs union that has no trade deal, whatever, with the U.S. I just think it, it belongs to a bygone age. Um, so, moving off slightly, you're one of you're one of the Anglosphere guys, right? Yes. Um, and why don't rather than me butchering it, why don't you explain what the sort of James Bennett and some of these other guys, what the argument behind the the sort of Anglosphere movement is and what it's trying to do. Well, the, the, the argument is that there are some countries in the world that share a particular heritage, uh, obviously our English-speaking countries and our common law countries, but that that heritage also translates into a number of other things. So they tend to have a similar attitude towards restraining government, towards the sanctity of property, the importance of free markets, uh, openness of international commerce, and so on. And for various reasons, um, each of those countries has tended to kind of get locked into regional blocks at the expense of relations with the other. Uh, and it, it's been a, a strong progressive argument that, you know, Australia is an Asian country and Britain is a European country and so on. But that really isn't, I think, the way the populations of the countries think. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think we feel a, a kinship and an affinity of, of values and outlook that, you know, you don't really get with uh, often in the world among among sovereign states. Um, 
We already have a military alliance. That, that, that bit is fine. That bit's right. doing just great. Uh, but what I'd love to... Uh, <laughs> I, the, the alliance between, uh, you know, we do lots of joint operations. Yes, the bilateral relationship. That bit is going yeah. way better, actually, than NATO is. So what would you need to add? To, to, well, obviously, free trade. Mm-hmm. Right? I would love to have proper, genuine, comprehensive free trade among the... Uh, English-speaking common law countries that are wealthy enough to sustain it. Mm-hmm. So this would be um, Canada, US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Israel. We always forget that Israel is a common law country. Mm-hmm. We don't think of it as, a, as an ex-British colony, but it has the, the same commercial that, yeah. norms, right? Yeah. The same accountancy, et cetera, et cetera. It is interoperable. That's the key mm-hmm. thing with the others. It basically the same kind of things. Now, that's a third of the world's economy. What if we had a free trade agreement based on complete mutual recognition? Okay, so then instead of doing it the way the EU does, which is to say, here's what we call a car. If you want to sell us a car, it has to have the following emissions right. and the, the number plate has to be like this. What if you just said, look, fine, if you call it a car, that's good enough for us. Right? Mm. We, we trust you. We trust your regulators. Why would you want to, to produce a car that wasn't any good? Right? Uh, if we just had complete reciprocity like that, so that it was a kind of free trade that didn't work for the, for, for the corporates, but that worked for the consumer, that worked for the little guy. Uh, now, I, I spent a bit of time, not least with, with AEI, actually. We had Derek Scissors do brilliant work on this, uh, on this project, along with all of the other big US think tanks. Mm-hmm. Heritage, Cato, Manhattan, CEI. It was like, you know, remember that scene in The Warriors, you know, the, 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 about the gang. <laughs> where they look at them all sitting down together. It was like that, right? The first time they've all collaborated. And we came up with what we thought would be the perfect trade. I mean, you know, on a really good day, if Milton Friedman was trying to design the perfect UK-US trade deal, what right. would he have come up with? And, but we did it in a way that could be enlarged to the whole of the Anglosphere. Uh-huh. And, and part of it, it would, would be uh, not unrestricted free movement of people, but free movement of labor in the sense of an implied right to take a job offer from another country. Mm-hmm. I think that would immensely increase competitiveness. But because the countries are of fairly similar GDP per head, it wouldn't lead to uh, fears about sort of a mass influx of people right. from a much poorer place. Although Southern California would fill up with Brits really quickly. Well, it's already fairly full of yeah. Brits. There's a very old cricket club there. and yeah. Yeah. Santa Monica, it's weird, has all of these like old British... Pubs, the Regal Beagle from Three's Company was, you know, mm. that, that, it's a very strange thing. Um, yes, in fact, there is a there is a, 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 a charity in Northern California that exists only to look after destitute Brits in Northern California, huh. and of course there are very few. There are some destitute Brits in Southern California, but they can't change the terms of the, <laughs> the original charter. So. so, so down and out Brits yeah. need to heed themselves to Northern California. <laughs> I like all that stuff. I'm, I'm enamored with that stuff. We may return to that. But let's change gears for a second. Uh, so I loved your book, uh, uh, How the English Created Freedom. I can't, yep. Yeah. And um, I, I quoted it at length. I use it a lot in my book. And, I, um, and then I give you a very slight pushback because the story that you tell is sort of a classic Whiggish story, right? That... Uh, the English are just weird. And, and I mean that in a good way, right? That, that you guys cared more about freedom than a lot of other people's. And it became part of your culture. And then part of it has to do with, as you go, you have this great sort of breakdown of all the different arguments. Part of it has to do with being an island nation. So you didn't have a standing army, which means you couldn't have an absolutist king. So you had competing institutions of power. Uh, part of the common law part. Uh, I get all of that. 
the the only place where I sort of push back is is I don't think it was inevitable, right? There yeah. is a certain amount of uh, I think it's fair to call you a Whig, but uh, w- w- listeners may not understand. There's a difference between being a Whig and a Whiggish historian, yeah. right? So a Whiggish historian thinks yeah. freedom is inevitable. There's a teleology, there's, right. and uh, it's almost like a Marxist version of freedom that right. the cold and personal force is just leading to freedom. Would you say you're not a Whiggish historian? But you yeah, are I mean Whig? that's a very fair, very fair criticism. Um, so yeah, I, I plead guilty to being a Whig, although not guilty to being English, as, as you can right. uh, guess from my surname and, and first name. Uh, um, uh, I live in England, but but have I'm not English by birth or ancestry. Or, uh, but you were born in Peru. I was born right? in Peru. Yeah, yeah. but uh, you may be the most interesting man alive. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, it's a really, so it's a really, really interesting question. So. Um, I mean, you're right. Whig history is, as you say, it's teleological. It, 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 its golden age was really the end of the 19th century, beginning right. of the 20th century, and it Butterfield saw and those guys. exactly, yeah. and it saw it saw all of the progression of English history as an inevitable series of steps leading towards the golden age that just conveniently happened to be situated in their present. Right, right. and that that uh, and Butterfield came out with an excoriating uh, historiographical attack on it, saying, right. you know, the, the, the people at the time don't think of themselves as being progressives, and judging people as progressive simply on the basis of whether their views resemble those of your own age is incredibly bad history. So, right. uh, it, you know, the, the, the classic example would be we tend to think of the English Civil War as being a war between progressive people who wanted Parliament to be in charge and reactionary people who were for the monarchy. But that is really not how they saw it at the time. The, mm. the, the, the parliamentarians were, in their own minds, absolutely convinced conservatives who thought that they were defending the ancient constitution against an innovative monarchy that was trying to revolutionize the system. Right. And I would make a similar argument about the American Revolution. Don't underestimate the conservatism of the patriot cause. That In their minds, they were defending the rights that they believed they had been born with as Englishmen right. uh, against a foreign, you know, a Germanic monarchy that was trying to change everything around, which, as it turned out, isn't what happened. But, you know, it, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that they were progressive simply because they were the Victoria side. It, it was, it was right. a, a much more nuanced story than that. Um, but I, I, I think you're right. I mean... I, I plead guilty to being a Whig. It was how Hayek described himself, interestingly. I think, it, you know, if Hayek and Jefferson were both were both good with the title, it, it, there's got to be something in it, right? Um, uh, Hayek, eventually, in, in, in that great essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, when he, the little bit where he talks about what he is, he says, you know, I, I now realize I'm an old Whig with the emphasis on the old, meaning... Right. Which is what Edmund Burke called himself as well. Which is what Edmund yeah. Burke, right. So there you go, Hayek, Burke, right. and Jefferson. No, right? I, there's got to be something in it, right? I'm happy. I mean, I, the, one I, the one guy in that group I want to kind of get rid of is Jefferson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Actually, at that stage, almost everyone would have called themselves a Whig just after the, the revolution. Right, well, see, this, this is one of my complaints, and I've brought it up on the podcast many times before because I'm just, I'm just that desirous to be popular with the kids today. The... The essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, every, every libertarian I've known who's wanted to sort of tweak me quotes the title. Yeah. And including Milton Friedman who wrote a letter to the editor of National Review in the 70s or 80s about it. And the problem is, is that they never read the actual essay where he says that America is the one place in the world where you can call yourself a conservative and still be a defender of liberty. Exactly. Because, because you are defending a libertarian constitution. Right. Correct. And... and, and Correct. He well, he kind of blood. made that argument about Britain a bit as, as well. He, yeah. he was talking about Anglo-America. But no, I, th- I think that's right. It's a very, very fair point. But I mean, on, but on your original question, which is a really good one, look, there, there was a series of happy accidents mm-hmm. that led 
to the development of, of liberty in the world, right? I mean, it may, may be, maybe we're living in one of those, one of those parallel universes where it, it went differently in lots of other ones and we're just right. lucky enough to live in this one. Maybe this whole thing is a simulation. Right? How, <laughs> how freaky is that? And someone's playing a sort of sim game with us. But, but the, the, there was nothing inevitable about it. And the, the reason that that is worth stressing, right? So you listed mm-hmm. some of the happy... Right happy factors that made this come about. Being, being an island means you don't have a standing army, so when you want money from the country, you have to ask nicely through a parliament. You can't compel with an army. You know, uh, the, the, the common law assumes residual freedom. Uh, you could make a strong argument that actually there had been a kind of common Germanic uh, inheritance of these things that died out in most of continental Europe, right. but survived. The Witan or whatever you call right. it. Survived yeah. on the island, yeah. survived in Iceland and in the Faroes and in Britain and in Switzerland was kind of almost like an island. And of course, the US initially was, it wasn't literally an island, but it was more isolated than anywhere. Right. And if, you, if you look at Washington's farewell address, he, you know, that, that was an island. Right. That was the mentality of an island people, right? right. Uh, far the Atlantic away was everywhere. a vast English right. channel. So, yeah. uh, so all of these, and the reason that it is worth stressing the accidental contingent nature is we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that therefore we've done that, right? We, we've solved the liberty issue. Uh, and now it's just a question of waiting for everyone else to fall into line. Uh, these things can go backwards. And uh, I would argue that actually we, the, the rise of uh, populist and relatively autocratic parties, even in kind of core Anglosphere territories, may be the herald of something new and different. And it may be that we will look back on our recent history as, as the the uh, the sunlit moment when right. there was a maximum emphasis on the freedom of the individual. Yeah, so um, you know, so part of the argument I make, and I know you haven't read my book yet, but... Uh, this I'm really going to, now that, now that I know you quote <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, you're in there quite a bit. Right. And, How uh, narcissistic is that? But that's part of, that's part of my argument. I'm sure you don't remember this, but uh, years ago on a National Review cruise, you had said something along these lines on a panel, and I came up to you in the on the Lido deck during breakfast or lunch, and I asked you about it, and you recommended that I read Ernest Gellner. Yes. And then I went, and I've read a lot of Ernest Gellner, yeah. and I, I really, I got a lot out of Gellner. And um, uh, and part of the point, you know, Gellner makes is that, that literally human consciousness changed once and only once in all of human history, and it happened in England. Now, Deirdre McCloskey will say it kind of happened in Holland, and... I, sometimes I get into fights with Dutch jingoists on this point, but it really I think the Dutch are right. I, I actually, I think it, it kind of was happening. I think this I think was one cross pollination. Of, of course, on, there yeah. was. Again, remember that island or no or island, that uh, in that era, sea travel was quicker, safer, and cheaper than land travel. So actually, there was it was easier to get from Amsterdam to the east of England than it was to get from London to the west right. of England. Right? I mean, it was sea travel. So there, of course, there was a lot of cross pollination. They were they, they were Protestant. They were mercantile. All that, but. The real, this is accident of geography stuff. Yeah, I think if you look at the, the basis of capitalism, the joint stock venture, limited liability, the Dutch were there slightly before mm-hmm. the English. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, you know where you really see this? If you look around the Rijksmuseum and you see the moment where capitalism develops in art, you see it as you go from one gallery to the next, that for hundreds of years, a painter works for a patron. He works for the church, he works for the prince, he works for the bishop, whatever. Suddenly, you know, explosive moment in the 16th century, people start painting without a particular buyer in mind. Yeah. Right? And then what happens? Well, we know what happens because we both believe in the market system. Specialization happens. 
people get really, really good. Hey, Jonah, you're really good at doing those bowls of fruits. Why don't you do that? I'll do the <laughs> seascapes. You know, you can do the, the landscapes. You do the portraits. The, the, the Dutch were there first. And, and you see the, the in, above the white roughs and, the, you know, those, those plump, happy, peaceful faces of people who understood that it was okay, it was virtuous just to do well legally yeah. by offering a service to everyone else. Now, why, didn't, why are we not now speaking Dutch? Why didn't Dutch become the language of liberty? Accident. Holland occupied a low-lying, indefensible plain. It exhausted itself in a series of defensive wars against Louis France. And it was then, uh, from the end of the, the uh, 18th century, um, uh, the, sorry, from the end of the 17th century, but throughout the 18th century, that basically the, uh, the banks and the, the trading houses relocated from Amsterdam to London because it was a safer option. Right. So uh, let me defend the Brits and the thesis of your book a little bit more than you're doing. Um, but it's, it's really funny that you bring up this thing about painting because I was at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg a mm. few years ago and, and I had to give a speech later and I made almost the exact same point. It's like it's, it's one Virgin Mary painting after another for hundreds of thousands of years in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe and then boom, all of a sudden it's you know these... Dutch masters, you know, and these yeah. businessmen getting self-portraits, you know. Isn't it great? I, yeah. I, I could spend all day looking at those portraits by, by Rembrandt and Franz Hals. The, the, the revolutionary nature, I mean, this is what Gellner meant by the change in yeah. thought. That, oh, and, and Deirdre McCluskey says something similar, that, that instead of finding virtue in sacrifice and faith and martial glory, you find virtue in offering a service to the people around right. you at an agreed price. What a revolutionary change to your whole morality. Well, that was, right. that's part of the linchpin of McCloskey is she argues that it was the, the flipping of in, innovation had been seen as a sin in Europe yeah. for a long time, going back to the ancient Greeks, really, and the Catholic Church, you know, pushed it too. And then all of a sudden, something something very English, you know, flips, and you have this Lockean notion that the fruits of your labor belong to you, mm. and that changes sort of everything. And what a great thing. I mean, when, when Napoleon was uh, planning to invade us, he said, you know, you're a nation of boutique, you're a nation of shopkeepers. Well, what would you rather live in? I mean, yeah. who has brought more happiness? Would you rather live in a, in a nation of monks, a nation of generals, a nation of trade union officials, right. uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-racism outreach workers? I mean, what better than to live in a nation of shopkeepers? Better than Prussia at the time. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, so part of the argument that I make in, in the book is, is that these quirky, weird things from English culture, you know, the concept of no man, a man's home is his castle and therefore mm. the sovereign needs some good reason to go in, it takes a long time. But that basically is where we get the Fourth Amendment. And you take uh, Locke's notes on toleration where he has this wonderful, you know, uh, you know, love letter to tolerance where we have to let these charismatic Protestant faiths have space in our society, but not but the not Catholics. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then it comes to America it. and Jefferson takes the principle and expands it, yeah. right? And so that the beauty of the American founding is that it takes what were quirky cultural attributes, yeah. it sort of puts them in a center views and pulls them out as sort of uh, golden principles. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the reasons that this, I want to get back to this is that, that part of the problem is that um, what you're talking about across Europe and how we may be in sort of a great parenthesis, at the end of some great parenthesis in human history, is that the abstractions, as important as they are and how necessary as they are to organize a society according to neutral rules, right? So the extended order needs to be, the macrocosm, as Hayek would call it, needs to be about contracts and, and Gesellschaft, right? And the microcosm is all about the Gemeinschaft. Um, 
if you don't have the right Gemeinschaft, you don't have the right family that teaches these things, not as abstractions, but as deeply felt cultural commitments that we just love freedom for right. its own sake, what you get is corruption. You get the yep. rotting away of things. And you look at throughout Europe and big yep. chunks of the United States now is we do not teach people so to be culturally attached so to these things. What you've just said is so important, Jonah. In fact, it's so important that we, we should try and find a way of saying it that doesn't involve saying Gesellschaft and Gemeinschaft. <laughs> but I yeah. find a slightly yeah. more... Yeah. Three the listeners but, of this podcast have heard me go <laughs> with all so, different ways with it, but yeah. But... Uh, I mean, okay, it's a bit like, you know, when people, the, the, the really irritating leftist thing of saying, what is the cause of poverty? And you want to tear your hair. I mean, I don't want to tear my hair. I haven't got any hair, but, it, you know, you want to tear, to tear your, your <laughs> thick and luscious locks out. I mean, you know, poverty is our primeval condition, for goodness right. sake. The question is, what creates wealth, right? I would say exactly the same about corruption, right? When people say, what creates political corruption? It is extraordinary that there are places where the rulers do not just systematically loot right. the entire state, right? For most of the last 10,000 years, that was the story of human history. We were serfs and slaves while a tiny clique basically treated everything as private property and didn't draw any distinction between the, right. the, the, their, their public role and, and their, their private greed. So the interesting question is, how did we, in certain countries, particularly countries that are lucky enough to speak this language, develop a system where... Uh, it wasn't just that it constrained that tendency, but it, it was usefully channeled. The, the, right. the way to fulfill your greed was actually to, to do something that was, was socially useful. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think what, what, you, what, what, you, what you just said, the importance of, of communicating these ideas, right? L liberty is counterintuitive, it's unnatural. It, it is, right. So, so we are programmed towards tribalism. We are programmed to not to listen to an idea on its merits, but to, to, to gauge it on the basis of whether we like the person saying it or not. Right. We are programmed towards hierarchy. I think we're probably programmed towards some kind of absolute monarchy. You look at it, mm -hmm. even when we imagine in our science fiction, in our sort of Star Wars, we, we recreate it with emperors right. and princes and things, right? So all of the things that we've built, all of these, at, at, at its broadest, these Republican virtues of, of uh, standing... Small R Republican Small virtues. R Republican. Yeah. Self-reliance and personal autonomy and sanctity of property and, and freedom of, of exchange and contract and all the rest of it. These are all counterintuitive ideas in the literal sense that they are running up against instincts and intuitions right. encoded by a million years of evolution. And so if you are looking to explain the decline of enlightenment values in higher education or more widely now in the political system, it, there's no mystery, right? It's that we're ceasing to teach it. Right. You, have to, you have to inculcate in people. You have to hammer in you have to make them read their, their John Locke and, and their Blackwood and so on. And even at, at, at an earlier level, you know, uh, teachers at junior school need to start encouraging the idea that the rules are not just what I say they are, right? right. The rules are, are abstract and they're above even me as the teacher. And uh, that is a, 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 you and I were brought up to be so habituated to that idea right. that we don't stop and think how freaky it is, right? right? But as soon as you stop teaching it, people will lose it. Right, as, as the Roman poet Horace says, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork, but it always comes rushing back right. in. And, exactly. um, and so that's, that's the overarching theme of my book, is this, that the corruption is natural. You go to Afghanistan and you tell them, you can't give your cousin this contract. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. This is how politics has been done for 2,000 years. And they're right. The, yeah. We're the weird ones, yes. and we don't understand that. And so much of the social justice stuff, so much of the, um, you know, the socialism envy that's coming back, is reactionary. It is trying to imp impose 
old ways of thinking gussied up in new, new arguments. But in reality, the only really new thing in the last 10,000 years, putting religion aside, um, is this thing. Is, yeah. is liberal democratic capital. And what a thing, right? And, and it's what a single, wonderful thing. And it is the single most important factor in your life and in mine and in the lives of everyone watching because the fact that they are able to watch or listen to this podcast is enough to tell me that, right? That's right. That they are the beneficiaries of this unbelievable explosion of wealth right. brought about not, not through any discovery of any new mir- mineral or anything like that, but just a different way of thinking about society, property rights, and contract. All right, so since, since we're in violent agreement on all of that, Let's be a little more granular. What the hell is happening in Europe? Why why is this argument falling on deaf ears as much as it is? Yeah, it's, that that's a really interesting and 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 rather troubling question. Uh, I mean, one part of the answer, because these things never have a single cause. Part of the answer is obviously the financial crisis, and more precisely, the reaction to it. Right. right? Uh, what people saw with the bank bailouts in the U.S. as in in Europe was that some very wealthy bankers and bondholders were rescued from the consequences of their own mistakes by expropriating everybody else through the tax system. Right. And for the first time in my life, that seemed to vindicate a big part of the argument of the extreme left. Because mm-hmm. the extreme left always used to say, uh, this whole capitalism thing is a lie. Right? There's no meritocracy. There's, there's no freedom. There's a, well, all it is, it's just a way for the rich to hang on to their possessions while, while spinning a story to the rest of us that, that, whereby we're supposedly given a chance. Now, you know, I, I always thought that was self-evident nonsense. And, right. and the proof of what nonsense it was was where people tried to apply the opposite and, you know, in, in, behind the Iron Curtain. You saw real elitism there and, and, and the horror of, of concentrating power. Uh, with a group of people uh, in those places. But, you know, there was that moment round about 2009 when the money was being uh, sprayed around that for for the first time in my life, that critique appeared to be true. And, you know, even now, I still get pretty angry, actually, about that. I mean, in the UK, we took a trillion dollars. Where is it now? Nobody really knows. You know, who got it? Socialized losses, privatized profits. Right. So so people are... And that inevitably led to a loss of confidence, a loss of legitimacy in the market system and a push to the political extremes. So that, that's a bit of it. But I think there may be something else going on. When you spoke about the, the you used the phrase, the, maybe the, the, the liberal period was bracketed mm-hmm. and we've, we've come to the, the close of the parentheses. There is, in my mind, a horrifying possibility that we have up until now lived through an unusual kind of interglacial period where... Uh, there are norms of civility based on a broad acceptance of liberal democracy in Western societies. And that that period really only lasted from the kind of 30s to the 2000s. And that we may now be returning to a more angry and tribal Mm -hmm. glacial period, because it will be a colder and darker period. Um, Now, I think there are challenges. If, if, If like you or like me, if you're someone who believes in uh, a market system, if you're a conservative in the in the Anglo-American sense, that poses huge challenges, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think this is an inevitable disaster sure. for us by any means, but we need to understand the way in which uh, new forces have been brought into politics and we need to understand how to work with those forces and, and, and how, uh, you know, which ones are beyond the pale. And, and this, I think you see it you see it with the rise of protectionism here. You see it with the rise of uh, angry anti-immigrant parties in Europe. Uh, it's not enough to say 
you're all a bunch of uh, ignorant racist idiots. I mean, that, that, that was a big part of what caused the thing in the first place. Um, but nor is it quite enough just to say, oh, that, okay, let's just go in completely with this new way of, of doing right. things. This is the future. That, that, that those can't be the only two alternatives. Yeah. So one of the explanations for America that I put a lot of weight behind, I mean, I think financial crisis is obviously one of the causes. There's a lot of data that shows that populist movements tend to have very long tails in the wake of financial yeah. crises. One of the things that I, in my our colleague, uh, Tim Carney, is uh, coming out with a book that addresses some of this, is that we've been, we've been drawing down social capital, that institutions, which are the things that actually civilize people, right? Mm. And the Constitution doesn't civilize people. The family civilizes people, and then the concentric circles of institutions yes. outside of when th- those things are breaking down, yes, and when and we've known for a very long time that when the family and local institutions, like particularly religious institutions, break down, um, people revert back to human nature. Yes. I mean, that's why young men join gangs for the last ten thousand right. years, right? And so, I guess part of my question is a factual one: Is the breakdown of institutions the same or analogous in in Europe? Um, you can see how communism sure. did enormous damage to civil society. Yeah. But what about England? Right. So, uh, first of all, we, we should we should uh, bracket again the fact that that no one could accuse the good Tim Carney of not doing his bit. He coaches little league, and he, yes. I mean, he is he's a, a one man civil he society. He lives machine. up yes. to his he lives his beliefs in a way that that very few people do. And I think uh, he has something like sixty three kids. Now. Exactly. Yeah. God bless him. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, and and uh, Ben Sass has written a similar book right. about this, right? And I just, you know, I just want to, because never ever miss an opportunity to plug Ben Sass, who I think is yep. one of the the great forces for good in, in, in frequent American guest politics. on this podcast. Brilliant, brilliant man. Wow. Um, and of course, there is something in that, right? The, it's the little platoons, and again, they were very unusual, and they were partly a function of the common law. They were partly a function of something quite extraordinary, which is the. The, the common law's peculiar emphasis on the rights of the individual even after death, mm-hmm. right? So that you can leave your money to right. a trust that will then... and the, the, I mean, again, stand back. How weird is it that the, the wishes of the dead should trump the needs of the living? Right. And yet such is the emphasis on individual rights in, in, in the common law system that it, it does. And that meant that... Art collections, orphanages, you know, uh, every kind of charity every, could could get going, filling the space between individual and state. And, and right. now, is that in decline? Well, it hasn't been systematically destroyed in the way that it was uh, in the Eastern Bloc. Um, Janos Kadar in Hungary had the job of closing down every one of these organizations, yeah. every women's institute, every tennis club, every Boy Scouts troop, and he did. And, you know, 2,000 and something organizations yeah. done. You know, of course, people are then left in this horrible, uh, isolated situation. The, the, the real, the ultimate paradox of communism, that it isolates everybody, right? It, right. It, it, it sells solidarity right. and it alienates exactly. everyone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, has that happened, though, now in the West, not through state action, but just through, you know, young people being online all the time. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure it has. I mean, organized I, religion has been very weak in Western Europe for a long time. Organized right? religion has been in decline for a long time. But I still think, I mean, there isn't a, a notable decline in America or in Britain in charitable giving. Mm. There isn't a notable decline in volunteering. Uh, people are still prepared. I mean, it's, you know, this is the ultimate proof, if you like, of a healthy society, right? That instead of saying, why don't they do something, that you actually 
right. do your bit, right? A la carne. Um, so I, I'm not sure that, that that can be all of it. But I will say this. I mean, I think going back to the idea of the interglacial, going back to the idea that maybe it was the late 20th century that was unusual. It was unusual for me in, in, in two very striking ways. First, there was a clear external enemy throughout sure. that period, right? First, uh, the, the Nazis and the Japanese, and then the Cold War. And that, that made people forget their differences, to, or at least bury their differences. The other thing, and I think this is especially true in this country, there was an unusual degree of, of homogeneity. Because mm. the, the 1920s immigration restrictions had kicked in, so I suspect, I, I, I haven't seen the figures, but I suspect that if you look at the 50s and 60s, you will probably find that there is a higher proportion of native-born U.S. citizens than at any other time before or since mm-hmm. because of those, uh, those migration restrictions. People who all watched the same three TV networks all basically went to the same schools, studied the same syllabus. So you know, th- that, that may have been the exceptional period. And now that your country and mine and the rest of the world has moved back to an age of mass migration, there is necessarily a lot more cultural heterogeneity, and that brings challenges. Yeah, and I would add to that, people forget that the World War I generation, with a brief brief and glorious roaring 20s in between, and then the Great Depression period, the New Deal period, which is a dozen years, segues then into World War II, and then the GI Bill you had basically a huge generation and a half mm. that had been taught by government that big units were better, right. that uh, people should fall in line and march in step. And as much as I love to beat the crap out of the damn hippies, um, I, I generally hate generational stereotyping to begin with. Listeners of my podcast know that you know, I hate the phrase greatest generation, mm. in part because if you storm Normandy, right, and survived, I, you shouldn't have to pay for a beer for the rest of your life. If you were in a drunk tank in Peoria, why do yep. you get, it's identity, it's the cheapest form of identity politics, to take credit for it, the bravery of other people, right. right? But the greatest generation, such as it is, uh, they did more to distort constitutional government in the United States than the hippies did. Yes. Because at every stage of their life, the federal government, from the GI Bill through changes to Social Security and whatnot, kept catering to their demands as they went along, building up this entitlement state in their wake. I think it was especially the war. This is the awful, awful domestic effect of wars. I mean, by the way, I love the way you ran Great Depression New Deal together as though it was the same thing, which of course it was, right? The one yes. having been prolonged for about an, uh, an extra seven years artificially by the other. Right? There, was, I mean, there was a depression was, and then the New Deal, the New Deal made then, it a Great then, Depression. Then, then turned it into yeah. the catastrophe that it was, right? I'm, I'm glad we agree on that, that uh, I think probably still counterintuitive thought for most people. But, yeah. uh, but I mean, the, you know, the, the the UK went in a more statist direction than most of the other Anglosphere democracies because it was in the war for longer and right. was subjected to the uh, pressures of full mobilisation. And, and it was also more existential for you guys than it was for Australia yeah, or the United States. Of course. And it yeah. was, it was, it, but, but, but really what happened is that it was the change in, in the mindset that was the worst thing, right? We, right. We, we, we paid off the debt. I mean, I think we've, we've finally sent our last check to you guys in 2007 or something with a, with <laughs> a, with a thank you note. Yeah. Um, but but the, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, 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 the bombing of infrastructure. It wasn't even the, the loss of life that was the really permanent change. It was the attitudinal change. In a war, you have to allow 
a degree of state intervention that in sure. other times would be intolerable. And not only do you have to allow it, but it becomes unpatriotic to complain about it. Right. Don't you know there's a war on? That was the, the, right. the phrase. Don't you know there's a war on? Right? So that generation were then accustomed to the government running, you know, dragooning people into, into, into you know, confiscating things, nationalizing things. And the... The, the, the sort of feeble version of uh, the, the standard but, but, but incorrect version of British history says the, the country swung left in 1945 with the election of the first Labour right. majority and that lasted until Thatcher in 1979. No, if the country swung left, it was in 1940. It was not, you know, 1945, the Labour victory was just putting the belated official stamp on the change that had actually been caused yeah. by the necessity of full mobilisation. And that yeah. was, you know... That, I think, was the real price that we paid for the war. It wasn't finishing with, you know, the, the debt that we did and all the rest of it. It was the the way in which socialised uh, uh, identity cards, state-run mm. hospitals, state-run schools, everything came all from that All the closed-circuit television. It's amazing. Yeah. Americans would not tolerate some of that right. st- big brother stuff you've got. No, but it, it's funny. I just have a piece coming out in the next issue of National Review about how modern progressivism is always, ever since William James coined the phrase moral equivalent of war, has basically been a play on this idea that war is war is great for mobilizing people to get them loyal to the state. We just don't like the bloody bits, yep. right? And, uh, and so it's Randolph Bourne, who was this largely forgotten progressive intellectual who coined the famous phrase, war is the health of the state. And part of what he meant by that was he distinguishes three entities, the, the nation or the country, the government, and the state. And in times of peace, at least in America, you're not supposed to be loyal to the government. You know, the government is a thing where you adjudicate differences. Right. right? It's only when you go to war that all of a sudden the government is yeah. magically transformed into the state and you dare not question yeah. it. And yeah. Um, the aim of progressives in America for a very long time has been to try to take that attitude and make it a permanent feature of peacetime life. And they've had remarkable success. They've had remarkable success. And, I mean, there's a... For me, the greatest works of fiction about the Second World War are the three books that make up Evelyn War's Sword of Honor trilogy. Mm -hmm. I just think that is... Especially from a conservative point of view. I mean, it is the most brilliant conservative critique of... of, But there's a line there where one of the characters says... um, when the shooting starts, politics and economics ends, and it's only race and nation that count. Right. And it is notable that some of the countries with the most troubled and bloody histories are also the ones that assume the most authoritarian government. Right. You know, and I, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. All right, so I just... I have to put on my journalist hat back on for a second because um, I would much rather <laughs> geek out with you as a roundhead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd be like about five people watching, dressed <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> in great collars. And... No, I, I'll tell you this. You know, one of the things about the stupidity of these times, and this is not an ideological point, the reason why podcasts are hugely popular now, and aren't sort of the, there remains to be seen whether it's the golden age or whether it's the dawn of a mm. new age of podcast, is that uh, you know. Cable television news, and I say this as someone who makes part of my living being on cable television, and talk radio and all these things, they are so uh, dumbed down to the broadest denominator of a certain group that whether you're on the left or the right or someplace in the middle, um, people are flocking to these things where they can actually have conversations where people don't scream yeah. at each other. Yeah. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the more popular and conversations. You know, I, I, you know, I was saying to you earlier... Um, 
Americans are primer, more polite and more civilized than Brits and will always refuse to believe that, and unless they've lived in Britain for a long time. But I would say the same thing about TV. Mm-hmm. Um, American TV is now plainly the most intelligent and best made on the planet. The good stuff. Right. Yeah. And, but again, there is this absolute cultural reluctance to, oh, no, but the BBC are so clever. They've all got these funny yeah, 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 posh yeah. accents. Right? Uh, the, the, the truth is, and it's, it's an odd thing that I, I... It took me a while to spot this. There is still a lingering snobbery about TV in the UK. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, if you are a well-educated, upper-middle-class person... You have a TV in the house, but it should never occupy a prominent position. Ideally, it should be—you should be able to sort of put it behind doors, and you right. know. Um, and it is certainly not something you would—you certainly wouldn't spend a lot of money on a great flat screen thing. Whereas, of course, here you're a Harvard professor; no problem at all having sure, a great. Sure. You know. And the result is that some TV programs get made for that Harvard professor, whereas almost none get made for his British equivalent. That's interesting. Um, it, it, it goes a long way to explaining Benny Hill, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I actually I loved, you know, back in the day. Um, so, all right, I was going to come back to Brexit, but before that, uh, when you say that Americans are more prim and proper and and formal than than Brits, is it? Is you ever see the movie Metropolitan? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry, not Metropolitan, Barcelona. Ma- oh, same yeah, guy. As, as well, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, Although uh, Metropolitan demonstrates the point rather well, I thought. It does, it does. And I was a Freudian slip, but <laughs> I shouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, when me and my friends saw that, yeah. when it came out of the theaters, uh, we were like, oh my gosh, this is what the wasps were doing while we were going to bars. Because yeah. like, it, it was a completely different yeah. world in Metropolitan, but I love that movie. But, no, but in Barcelona, there's this great little bit about how the, the Spanish think Americans are rubes because Americans only eat hamburgers. And the problem is, is that the Spanish don't know how to make hamburgers. Mm. So these hamburguesas that they serve them really are garbage. And then right. they think, well, Americans, of course, are rubes because they eat this garbage, yeah. right? Is it that Americans don't think Brits are... Is, it, is the reason why Americans think Brits are much more prim and proper because there's a selection bias about the Brits we're actually exposed Maybe. to? Maybe. Uh, listen, I'll take it, right? I mean, it's yeah. terribly flattering. And, and it's... It, it, but... I mean, what, what every Brit will notice when he comes here for any length of time are some of the following things that within a few days. One, people don't really swear. Uh-huh. We swear, as you will have noticed, all the time in, in conversation. It's quite the thing is, we don't recognize that some of the things, like bloody and yeah. bugger, we don't actually recognize those are swears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we, do, we, but we, we swear more conventionally as yeah. well, a lot more. You know, I mean, look at a newspaper, right? Look at yeah. what we will print in our papers and what, what your papers sure. will not print. Is that they will just be too prim to do it. Uh, you know, I, generally people are a, a bit more correct actually about how they dress. They're certainly much more correct about calling each other sir and ma'am and so on. Uh, and there is a, a great level of civility and courtesy here, which, by the way, I think is fantastic, right? Mm. I mean, despite everything, you, you know, you as an American often complain about the things that are going wrong and the decline and the taking sure. off of guardrails and all that. Right. T- totally with you on all that, comrade, completely. But, you know, my goodness, you're starting from a good place, right? And sure. And that degree of unspoken civility and and just it's taken for granted that people are considerate is is great um now we are relatively a quite earthy hogarthian people who drink a great deal and and behave badly in public and get into fights all the time um and yet you guys are so wonderful you come to britain and you just avert your gaze from all this <laughs> and you somehow go back and say oh everyone's terribly polite there <laughs> it's fantastic and it's terribly nice of you to say so but i, I just think it's very very difficult to sustain the yeah i mean th- by the way i mean the the the, the there's nothing you know uh, 
all, all these systems can work, right? You can ah. live it. You can live in a. a, a you can live a, a, like a, an Italian and just sort of shout at people all the time, and it, it, it reaches a. A, a, a stable medium, and everyone right. gets on fine. It's it's just no, it's just very amusing to me when you when you're translated to somewhere else uh, and you don't yeah. see what's different. Well, that's one of the funny things about Americans generally is that, not counting the South, really, is we tend not to think we have a culture. Mm. And every time any immigrant comes here, I'm like, what are you talking about? This place is you know as much of a a culture as any place else. But we tend to. Our, our our cultural understandings tend to be much more invisible to us than I mm. think they are to Europeans. Who like the French have a pretty highly developed understanding of what it means to be French. Yeah, Americans, you know, it's in I, the back of I our would, heads. I would say there's a weird kind of projection going on where the criticisms of the U.S. made by continental Europeans are not just untrue, but are very often more true of Europe than of the U.S. When people say uh, there's a racial problem, mm. when people say um, the TV is garbage. I mean, kind of, you know, watch an hour of Italian TV and then yeah, come yeah, back yeah. and tell me that American TV is garbage. Come yeah. on, you know. Uh, when people say, oh, you know, they all live in all these suburbs. Yeah, and very nice places they are, unlike the suburbs of most French or Dutch or Danish yeah. uh, cities, which have become no-go areas, right? Uh, or, and, the, and the culture thing is the strangest thing. When people say, you know, where's their Shakespeare? Well, Given that he was writing, you know, 100 years before the Mayflower set out, the, the American Shakespeare is Shakespeare, for goodness sake. Right. Every, uh, every city here has a Shakespeare festival now. Right. Right? You, you won't find anywhere on the planet where it's more valued. I mean, it's yeah. just, no, that's people are just true. extraordinarily reluctant to see what's in front of them. Yeah, so I, I guess this also gets to the filtration part. One of the things that a lot of the cultural products we export are things that work in a lot of different languages, right? Yeah. So they're violent. And there's a lot of nudity, right? So Baywatch was huge American global export. Mm. In America, look, I'm, I, I was the right age group. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the right orientation. I've watched my share of Baywatch, but it was always considered sort of campy and yes. dumb, yes. right? Like Benny Hill. It's only for yeah. export. It's only for export. And, uh, or or, or, or uh, watching on mute, yes. right? I mean, like yeah. watching beautiful women in yeah. bathing suits run on the beach yeah. has a certain appeal. Yeah. And uh, But no one mistook it as high culture in America, but that was what gets sent off. It's the hamagwaces yep. that go abroad. We only get your really good TV shows. Mm. And um, so we get, uh, you know, Downton Abbey, which is an adventure in nostalgia as much as anything else, but it's great soap opera. And uh, we get Luther, um, but we don't get uh, lowbrow stuff from you guys. Mm. And you get, and don't, you guys, I, I, I don't know how much at least in France, they get of our highbrow stuff, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, I well, every, of course, it, it's now much easier because everyone's getting their box Internet, sets yeah. on you know, Netflix and so on. Um, but it is striking that almost all the good stuff is still made here. Yeah. And that's partly a function of having a bigger market. It's partly, as I said earlier, it's a, a function of having a more highbrow market. There is no residual kind of snobbery about it. Um, a certain kind of Brit makes a point of watching foreign language dramas, mm-hmm. uh, just you know, but usually, if you put them head to head, they're not really better. Yeah. It's just the sheer pretentiousness of being able to say, "Oh, well, you know, I watched this Swedish right. series." If you haven't seen it in the original Finnish, yeah, exactly. don't talk to me. Yeah. All right, so all right, just to wrap up very quickly on the on the back to the rank punditry about all this, what do you think is the most likely scenario to happen with Brexit? When do you think it will happen? And what will the reaction among uh, the various parties in England look or in the UK look like? 
I think Brexit is likely to go ahead this year. There may be a delay of a few weeks, but uh-huh. I, I don't think it'll be... The official date is what? The, the currently scheduled date is the 29th of March. If a deal is struck, it may require until the end of June to implement it. I don't think anyone would protest about a few extra weeks after 45 years, right? So that, that those, those, I think, are probably overwhelmingly the two options, end of March or end of June. Which one it is, is determined by whether we leave with a deal, mm-hmm. in which case it'll probably be June, or whether we leave without a deal, in which case it'll be, it'll be March. And that would happen only by accident. But we've somehow convinced ourselves that we can't leave without permission, you know, uh, which is basically what securing a deal means, right? right? And that is extraordinary. Don't get me wrong. I'm utterly in favour of getting a deal with the EU. It is, I shouldn't need saying that it is better to have an amicable, ongoing relationship than not to have. And apart from anything else, we don't want to leave in a way that causes them any problems, right? Because right. these are our friends, these are our allies, these are our neighbours. And do you know what? Even if they weren't, we would still want to have rich neighbours because they make better customers, right? right? So we have an enduring interest in the stability and prosperity of, of the EU. But it is an extraordinary leap to go from there to saying we cannot leave unless we've satisfied the EU on all of the following issues. I mean, imagine if, if uh, you know, in the 1770s, if, if Franklin and, and your hero Jefferson and, and Washington <laughs> and so on had all said, well, you know, we can't leave unless we have a continuing customs union with Great Britain. And right, right. We can't leave unless we, we continue to, to accept the supremacy of their law in certain areas. And so I mean, extraordinary thing. No country ever gets poorer over time as a result of becoming more self-governing, right? Um, you, know, you guys voted leave and it, it worked out okay, right, from where I'm sitting with all the problems. Uh, and, and the same will be, will be true for us with or without a deal. Daniel, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonah. Yeah, thank Always you. a pleasure. Yeah. Okay, so we can't use the normal sound effects for someone leaving the building because he left the building yesterday. Or maybe we can. We can do whatever we want. Uh, but now it's Jack and I back in the studio. Jack, you have a, you have objections to uh, that conversation. No, I mean, I, it was a great conversation, but I, I could tell that you you wanted to say things about Brexit that you, were, that you did not have the uh, courage to say in front of the one of the leading Brexiteers. Courage might be the Tact. wrong word. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it was a real test of my courage because for me, the stakes were kind of low. Uh, but I hear what you're saying. Um, I didn't want to, I really don't want to talk about Brexit that much. And he is so, and I, I like Hanan so much and he is so invested in this and he's so, the asymmetry in his commitment to the cause versus my, you know, noncommittalness to it, it just, it wasn't like I could come up with any gotcha questions that he wouldn't be able to answer and I wanted to move on to other stuff. But, you know, I, I think he paints a kind of rosier picture on the situation with Brexit than than the facts so far have warranted. The fact that there was a binder that said, here's how we're going to do Brexit doesn't really cover the the fact that no one seemed to have a really good plan about how to deal with the EU that wasn't going to go along with it. But his point about how they all assumed that there would be someone who was pro-Brexit actually running the the stuff as prime minister is a good one. Um, what was your um, other objection other than my cowardice? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, th- I, th- I think that I, on the Jamie Kerchick episode, you expressed skepticism 
about the mechanism of a referendum for making a decision of that nature. Um, am I is that a mistake? It's entirely possible. I generally don't. Not well, do you? How do you feel? You're not. So you're not. I can't remember how passionate I was with Jamie Kirchick about it, but uh, well, how do you feel now? Uh, I think the whole thing is just an embarrassing cock up. Um, I think from <laughs> that's a dodge. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I, whether I took that position or not last time around, what 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 is your objection? Well, you see, so you're more pro Brexit than I am. With so with the caveat that one of the weird things about our supposed nationalist moment is that uh, nationalists from individual countries seem to care greatly about nationalists from other countries, which I find strange. I mean, I, why, is, why is Steve Bannon out trying to goose up the fortunes of Viktor Orban in Hungary? I mean, uh, whatever you think of Orban, like why does Steve Bannon care about Hungary? Right. He's from, if he's a nationalist from America. So given that, like... This doesn't really affect me. I'm not English. But the the idea of referendum and the relationship of of Britain to the UK, for the first thing, it was England was joined the EU and it's England joined the predecessors of the EU basically by prime minister signing a treaty. Like no not no vote, not even a vote in parliament. Mm-hmm. And then there and then so I I was wondering why it was a referendum that caused this or that, that why that's what the people were campaigning for this time around. And it turns out that's because the, the idea of a referendum on EU membership has a long history in England. So the, there was a, a referendum vote in the 70s that was uniformly in favor of joining. Mm-hmm. But this was a vote after the uh, England had already joined a predecessor to the EU. So Parliament has never – I mean the idea would probably be that Parliament would have voted on this – but as far as I can tell, Parliament has never voted on EU membership in any form, which there... I find odd. But it's if if we're about the long traditions of existence here on this podcast, the long tradition of existence concerning decisions about EU membership in England seems to be you either have the whole country vote on it or you have the prime minister just sort of decide, okay, we're in or okay, we're not. So it's the... yeah, but I mean, if the prime minister is campaigning. On joining or not joining, then the national, then the next parliamentary election that gets him to be prime minister is basically on that issue, right? Um, I don't look. I, I your objection is is it's you like it for procedural reasons. Well, that's just the, the this is defending the referend the idea of a referendum, the idea of leaving the EU. So I just find it strange observing that any decision to uh, about EU membership seems to be seems to be one way and one answer like the i think it was in ireland that there were just multiple referenda held until until they won yeah, yeah and that that's that's just strange no, I, it, it, it's absolutely true that there's a eloy versus the morlocks thing about the eu the eu the data from the, like the 80s and 90s is really kind of fascinating i, mean, I haven't looked at this in a long time but maybe even the early 2000s but the the death penalty was popular in almost every single country in Western Europe and the EU never put it to a vote. They never put it to really even like a court case. They just got rid of it. You know, these elites were undemocratic in all sorts of ways and they just had these very sort of highfalutin ideas about how to run a society. I mean, and that's the stuff, I mean, that that Daniel has been giving these floor speeches about at the, you know, 
in in Belgium, and I, I am I am passionately committed to the cause of fighting Belgian he- hegemony. <laughs> um, but um, with papal ninjas and uh, letters of Mark two twenty two twenty one, whatever it takes, man. And uh, but I just you know I think the Brexit thing was badly handled. I think it was. I think he downplays the degree to which some bad actors. I mean, I just I, I don't trust Nigel Farage as far as I can throw him, and. I think there were a lot of people who had shorter-term political interest ambitions involved in this than maybe not Daniel, but but some of these guys. Boris Johnson, I think, is immensely entertaining, but there's something about him I just do not trust. Um, his hair, his hair, the hair is a his hair is a good stand-in for the other things. But anyway, uh, but fair enough. I just didn't want to have a big fight about Brexit because I just. It's, but fights it, make podcasts fun. I, I agree, but it, but I'm not passionate about it. I mean, my view is, has always been, and I haven't moved off of it, that if I lived in England, I probably would have voted for it. But as an American, I'm much more ambivalent about whether or not it's in our interest. If Now, if Daniel Hannon was the prime minister of England and could push for this sort of Anglosphere free trade you know, alliance, I'd be all in. I'm a big fan of the Anglosphere stuff. But the problem is, is that nationalists tend not to be, I mean, it speaks really well of England that one of a major current in their nationalist movement was for more trade (laughs) and uh, more alliances. You know, it was not, the nationalism there is very different than the nationalism we've gotten from sort of the, the fever swamp guys on our right. But, Anyhow, but I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fun. It was creepy how much we mind melded on the book stuff, given that he actually hasn't read my book. <laughs> and uh, and I really do, for people, it's a very readable, eminently accessible book, his book on how um, the English invented liberty. I, I probably should have talked to him more just to have him explain why he's not an English person, why he's not English and um, why he's from Peru. I mean, it's just a strange story that he should have, I should have had him just do a little what's your origin story thing. But um you know, live and learn. Uh, you were you were just distracted by his accent. It's uh, it happens to the best of us. It does. Only the second British accent to appear on this podcast. Who was the first? Charlie Cook. Oh yeah, yeah. It was not. It was not. He was not English anymore, which is why maybe you forgot. Yeah, he'll always be English to me, <laughs> um, which is fine. All right, so uh, I want to thank listeners again um, for tuning in. Uh, we passed 3,000 – I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but we passed 3,000 reviews on iTunes, which is very exciting. Uh, people seem to really like the Noah Rothman episode on social justice. Is there anything else that we need to talk about this week before we go ahead into the weekend? I can't think of anything. And uh, by the time this comes out – I think my cover story for National Review on the moral equivalent of war will be out. And um, um, and I'm going to be on this Sunday's Face the Nation. And Okay, so before we go, though, I should uh, do some plugs. Uh, these, are, um, these are gratis, as we say in the business. Uh, the first one is for the National Review Institute's Ideas Summit, which is going to be at the Mandarin Oriental in Washington, D.C. on March 28 and 29. I believe I'm scheduled to have a, like a debate discussion thing about nationalism with Rich Lowry. Uh, the National Review's Ideas Summit is a biannual conference 
that features powerful and diverse lineup of speakers, including many of your favorite National Review writers, uh, representing the very best that the conservative movement has to offer. The 2019 theme is the case for the American experiment with a focus on American exceptionalism and the country's resilience and economic recovery. Uh, For more information and to register, please visit www.nrinstitute.org. That's www.nrinstitute.org. Space is limited, so reserve your seat today. I hope to see you in Washington this spring. Um, And then the other thing is a couple weeks ago on Tuck It, which I, again, full disclosure, I used to make fun of their name and I still don't like their name all that much, but whatever. Um, they, uh, but I like their shirts. And, um, Jack and I both got, uh, a, a, a little sort of free sampler, um, from them, which we used on their website. And my shirts had not come yet when we recorded the ad. And I want to say they're crazy comfortable. They're, they, they don't look like, um, you know, they don't look like shirts that were designed to be untucked. They just look like nice fitting shirts that happen to be untucked and they, um, but super comfortable. I wore mine while traveling, which was great and which is actually good because when you're traveling, it's kind of nice to have an untucked shirt. And, uh, so I just wanted to give them a shout out. I'd have no idea if they're going to advertise with us again, but I believe the, uh, slash dingo, um, or the dingo phrase that pays thing should still work over there. So give it a try. And if it doesn't, my apologies. Um, but whatever you do, don't try to tuck in the shirts. That's right. If you try to tuck in the shirts, it's weird. no, no, no. Don't even. Just don't. You don't want to find out. <laughs> it's sort of like feeding the uh, magwai after midnight. Yeah, just, just take our word for it. You'll burst into flames or something. Um, all right. So everybody, thanks very much uh, for tuning in. We're going to be back next week. I think we're doing a Venezuela episode next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, looking forward to that. Not an episode from Venezuela, although that would be, that would be something. That would be money. That would be great. <laughs> and, um, so until next time, I'll, I'll, so I'll see you next week, um, on this podcast. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Okay, that'll do.